Welcome back to episode four, season two of the Learning Curve podcast at Edmonton Catholic Schools. We're excited to bring to you another episode filled with insights and transformative discussions. Today's focus is on the intersecting paths of outcomes-based assessment and universal design for learning, featuring our special guest, Dr. Shelley Moore. Just like many, Dr. Shelley Moore navigated a unique educational journey. After earning her bachelor degree in special education from the University of Alberta, she embarked on her teaching career in the vibrant city of New York. Following two years there, Shelley found her home in Vancouver, British Columbia, where she served as a resource support teacher for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Then, Shelley pursued higher education, completing her master's degree at Simon Fraser University and her PhD at the University of British Columbia. Her research focused on inclusive education theory and practices, with her award-winning dissertation exploring ways to support teachers in increasing access to secondary grade-level academic curriculum for students with intellectual disabilities. In today's episode, Dr. Moore will walk us through the intersection of universal design for learning and outcomes-based assessment, sharing with us her depth of knowledge and expertise. Before we begin, please join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, as we embark on this episode, we humbly seek your presence and guidance. Bless our conversations on outcomes-based assessment and universal design for learning, that through these discussions, we may foster understanding, empathy, and a commitment to inclusive education. Illuminate our hearts and minds with your wisdom and grace. And may the words shared in this episode resonate with those who work to ensure that all students have access to equitable, caring, and quality education. In your name, we offer this prayer. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We would like to also acknowledge that we are recording on the traditional land of Treaty 6 and the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 4. We express gratitude to the Indigenous communities for their stewardship of the land. In unity, we call upon all our communities to engage with the diverse peoples who call this land home. Let us foster an environment where positivity flourishes, where the richness of Indigenous cultures is celebrated, and where reconciliation is achieved through respect, empathy, and collaboration. May our journey be guided by humility, compassion, and a shared commitment to truth and understanding. Let's now take a quick look at what's in store in our agenda today. First, Jennifer will guide us through the Learning Lab, where she will explore the concept of chunking to support scaffolding of learning outcomes for student understanding and retention of concepts. Following the Learning Lab segment, we will have our interview with Dr. Shelley Moore. In Tracy's Mindset Matters segment, we'll tackle the crucial topic of stereotype threat and strategies teachers can employ to create safe and caring classrooms. And lastly, Allison will share literary wisdom in our Lit Literature segment, featuring the book Mathematical Mindsets by Joe Bowler. That's the plan for today. Let's jump right in. we decode the brain's secrets of learning. I'm your host, Jennifer, ready to take you on a synaptic saunter into the realms of the cerebral cortex. Today, we'll delve into the fascinating world of chunking, a powerful cognitive tool that can supercharge student learning. Together, we'll unravel the art of breaking down complex concepts into bite-sized chunks, empowering students to grasp and retain information more effectively. Get ready to witness the magic of cognitive organization as we explore how chunking aligns perfectly with how 
how our brains naturally operate. Firstly, chunking reduces cognitive load. When students encounter a flood of information, their working memory can quickly reach its limit, impeding understanding and hindering the encoding of knowledge. By strategically employing chunking, we alleviate this cognitive burden and create a pathway to enhanced learning. Second, chunking enhances pattern recognition, a fundamental aspect of our brain's processing power. By breaking down complex concepts into smaller, meaningful chunks, we enable our students to identify patterns and connections within the content. This empowers them to grasp the underlying structure, facilitating deeper understanding and promoting the transfer of knowledge. Chunking also supports the consolidation of information into long-term memory. When we organize information into meaningful chunks, it becomes easier for our brains to encode and retrieve it later. Strong neural connections form, allowing students to effortlessly access and apply their knowledge in various contexts. Finally, chunking not only enhances memory, but also frees up cognitive resources for deeper understanding and problem solving. By organizing information into meaningful chunks, students can focus on the relationships and connections between chunks, promoting their higher order thinking skills. So how can we effectively implement chunking in our classrooms? It begins with careful analysis of the content we present. Identify the core ideas and break them down into logical interconnected learning progression. With that, we can design lessons that break down complex concepts into manageable parts, provide explicit guidance on identifying key patterns or chunk boundaries, and offer opportunities for meaningful practice and application. Visual aids, graphic organizers, and mnemonic devices can further enhance the chunking process, helping students make connections and reinforce their understanding. Remember, the goal is not to oversimplify the content, but to create a scaffold for learning. By aligning our teaching practices with the brain's natural learning mechanisms, we empower our students to navigate complex concepts with confidence and mastery. As we conclude this segment, let me leave you with a final point to ponder. How might breaking down complex information into manageable chunks enhance comprehension, retention, and student engagement in your classroom? Let us know in the comments. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Learning Curve podcast at Edmonton Catholic Schools. Today we are so excited to have Shelley Moore with us today. She is a teacher, researcher, consultant, and storyteller, and she's worked with school districts and community organizations throughout both Canada and the United States. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here today. Thanks for finding me. Yeah. So at Edmonton Catholic Schools, if our listeners haven't already um receive the messaging. We have universal design for learning as our main focus this year. And I think it's a focus that will probably continue on as we move throughout the years in Edmonton Catholic schools. So it's wonderful to, to have you here. And for our listeners who may be meeting you for the first time, uh, could you tell us a bit about yourself and what brought you to education? Um, well, exciting to tell you that I am from Edmonton, born and raised from the north side. Um, I remember we, I grew up in Castle Downs and, um, uh, we always, we always like realized that the best sledding hills were always at the Catholic schools. So, I mean, that's my, um, Edmonton Catholic connection. So we would always go to the Catholic schools because they had good hills. Um, I don't know if that was intentional or not. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Edmonton and, um, went to school in Edmonton when, um, Curriculum was a little bit more standardized than it was today and not universally designed. And I really struggled in school. 
Um, in grade three, I was diagnosed with having a learning disability and ADHD, which, you know, is not the best combination in a standardized curriculum and assessment um, context. And so I really struggled and um, I got a, a glimpse of what school could be in my middle school years. Um, I went to Mary Butterworth, which was a brand new school at the time and kind of give away my age. And it was designed differently. It was, you know, uh, around middle school methods and pedagogy. And I just absolutely thrived in this space. And I kind of, that was the turning point for me to be like, you know what, we got to blow things up. Like school, it's, it's possible for school to be fun and it's possible for school to be interesting and it's possible for kids to be successful. And it kind of started the, the spark, which led me to uh, be, becoming a teacher and working specifically. Originally, I wanted to work with students with my profile, students with learning disabilities, but ended up in the incredible world of uh, working with students with intellectual and developmental disabilities which I actually think hold the, the answers to education. So um, my my work and research with, with this particular group and their families have really led to um, the changes we need to make for, for all students across, across all jurisdictions. And so I'm so thankful that that's where it's ended up because it's really um, helped this journey continue. That's for sure. Wonderful. Thanks for, for sharing. So now you are a consultant and a researcher and a storyteller. Uh, what, what does a a week in your life look like? What well, are some of the things that you, you do? Um, okay. So it, it very much varies, which is very good for someone who has ADHD. Um, I uh, usually travel about one week a month and I, that's when I get to go to communities and meet, meet teachers and students and schools and families. Those are, those are my fun weeks, but I'm also a mom now. I have two young daughters, and so it's always nice to also come home. Um, when I'm home, I'm working with a lot of local jurisdictions. I do a lot of virtual um, professional development and coaching. And uh, because I finally finished my PhD, I can now also teach courses. So I'm teaching um, two undergraduate uh, courses for teacher candidates at University of British Columbia around inclusion and diversity. And I'm absolutely loving that. So I think there'll be more of that in my future because I just... Oh, you got, you got, you got to be practicing to do this work, and that's where I'm really finding um, that need being met for sure. That's fantastic. Uh, that's yeah. wonderful to hear that you're teaching at the, oh, the university. Man, I it. Yeah, I love it. You know, like this really, and you see, like you're working with these future teachers. Like the impact can be so huge. So I'm really fortunate. Yeah, starting them off on the right foot. That's it. That's it. Yeah, perfect. So from from all of these experiences. What themes in assessment or in inclu inclusion are you seeing uh, generally out there? Oh, man. Well, I mean, even just that question is, is so complex because usually assessment and inclusion don't go together. Um, they are two silos in education similar to curriculum and special education. And so when I'm, when I'm trying to do this work in the world of inclusion, um, what I've realized is that the big difference between special education and inclusion is that inclusion can't ignore assessment and it can't ignore curriculum. Um, but it's very hard to have one person that knows everything about curriculum and assessment and special education. And so, you know, just really, I think, key to the work around assessment is the importance of multiple expertise. I think some of the barriers around assessment that are happening is that the decisions around assessment are being stayed in the community of assessment instead of also talking to the communities of curriculum and the communities of special education. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing in British Columbia right now. And so when you set me the first question around where's the connection between universal design for learning and assessment, I'm like, my the, the the hairs on my skin started to raise because that tells me 
that we have communities working together because universal design for learning is, um, it, it crosses the boundaries of silos. And so I think that, um, that, that is the excitement that's coming right now is that the assessment, <laughs> the assessment community is expanding to include the multiple expertise of, of other perspectives, which is what's needed to make inclusive in- assessment inclusive. You couldn't have said it better. I think that's exactly what we'll talk that's about it. in this podcast. We'll define, define some terms that's for it. teachers and then, uh, uh, Start charting a path forward. So, but let's back up a little bit. Let's just uh, define what we mean in this podcast by universal design for learning. Uh, I I love that you asked that, Julia, because it's so misunderstood. Okay, so let's go back in time. Um, Universal design for learning comes from architecture. Okay, so in the world of architecture, you know what? I can connect this to Edmonton. You ready? So I don't know if anyone out there went to Harry Ainley or has taught at Harry Ainley, but Harry Ainley doesn't have windows in it. And if you look back and ask why Harry Ainley doesn't have very many windows, it's because there was a debunked, there was a debunked research study that said that daylight was a distraction to learning. Okay. And so we had to, there was retrofit that happened, not just Harry Ainley, but schools across Alberta, retrofitting the buildings because daylight is not a distraction to learning. It's a distraction in casinos. So like we have these buildings that have been created and it will always take more resources to retrofit them, whether it's for, for light, whether it's for accessibility, whether it's for, you know, like we have these buildings all and, and even now to get a permit, like I was living in a building in Vancouver and it was a brand new building. It was accessible. And then they decided after they were building it that they wanted to put a rooftop garden on. But the elevator doesn't go to the to the roof. It went to the top floor. So they put all these resources into creating this rooftop garden. And then the city was just like, you can't use it. It's not accessible. Like, you can't have an accessible building and then have stairs to a roof. So they had to retrofit the entire building with helicopters. And I asked my building manager and I'm like, they had to make an elevator for one floor. And I'm like, how much was that elevator? And she goes, you know, I can't tell you that, but I can tell you that that elevator cost more than both elevators from the ground to the 26th floor. That one elevator for one floor cost more because it was retrofit. Okay. So universal design comes from architecture because it's a very simple idea. If you design for variability in buildings, if you anticipate that you're going to have a variety of people using a building, and you anticipate that in your design, it is so much more a effective, but also efficient in cost than it is to bring helicopters in or put put windows and roofs because it wasn't designed properly from the start. And so when we're talking about universal design for learning, it's taking that idea of it's more effective and efficient to design better first than it is to retrofit later and saying, how do we design learning environments? that anticipate the variability of our classrooms, because of course there's variability, but anticipate that from the start so that the ramps and the windows and the elevators are already there for kids, as opposed to waiting and seeing who needs them and adding them in after the fact. Now, the tricky thing about this is that it sounds simple to design for variability, but we're in a system that actually, like the actual infrastructure of education isn't designed for variability, it's designed for homogeneity. So we have conflicting perspectives here and conflicting philosophies. 
And so what's exciting about universal design for learning is that it's actually pushing back on that very outdated assumption that our class, that the goal of classrooms is to be homogenous. Exactly. And I think I'm already starting to see the connections here with backwards design. So our understanding as the assessment team at Edmonton Catholic is uh, planning with the end in mind as defined by Wiggins and McTighe. So um, we start with that learning outcome. And it's really taking that time to do the planning so that you can uh, engage in your assessment for and as, and you have the activities that are going to engage all your students in that outcome before you even get to the summative. And really, we're, we're pushing out grading and marking until the end. Like, we're not going to do it until we absolutely have to. So can you um, talk about the relationship or the intersect between UDL and backwards design? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I don't know if you realize this, but there's an opposite to backwards design. It's called forwards design. Did you know that? Yes, from your video. Yes. The forwards design is, um, I realized, was um, a misinterpretation of backwards design because in forwards design, the the end in mind is that everyone has to do the same task. And if a student can't do the task, then you differentiate the task, right? So if if the task for everyone is an essay, in forwards design, you differentiate the essay. But if the essay is the problem, you don't even know if kids are meeting the goal. So backwards design is the opposite of that. Backwards design is everyone has to meet the goal. And then there's different pathways to meet the goal. So in universal design for learning, that process is, it's called firm goal multiple means, which is we're all going towards a common goal, right? Or a learning standard, but the pathways to get there do not have to be the same. Okay. And if you're differentiating the pathways, you're not compromising the integrity of the goal. But if you differentiate the task, you are compromising the integrity of the goal because that's the only way that evidence is being collected of the goal. And so what this allows in terms of equity, it just, it blows assessment up to be so much more accessible for kids because if you just change a task, you're not adapting or modifying a goal at all. And this really impacted me in grade nine in, in Alberta, because in grade nine, you have the, the PATs, the provincial achievement tests in the 90s, remember? And they were used as um, placement exams for the stream you go into in high school. You remember those, Julia? Okay, so yeah, in grade nine, I took my PAT in English and I failed it. I failed it because I am not a good test taker and I, and I am, I'm not confident writer at all. Okay. Now my teacher, so they actually recommended that I go into English 13. Remember English 13? (laughs) That's an adapted class. If I had gone there, I wouldn't have been able to go to university, let alone get my PhD. Okay. So it would have changed the trajectory of my life. Okay. My teacher, thank goodness, knew a thing about this went to bat for me and said, no, 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 no. Don't put her in English 13 because she can meet the goals of English 9. She's just having a hard time meeting those goals in the way you're asking her to meet them. And so the power of universal design is we're not compromising goals at all. All we're saying is there can be different ways to meet the goal that allows for students to use their strengths. And that doesn't, that's not adapted. That's not modified. That's simply like, another way to get there. And so if you con- if you connect that then to architecture, that's like saying, are you going to use the stairs or are you going to use the ramp to get to the top of the hill? You're still getting to the top of the hill. There's just more than one way to get there. And the more ways you have, 
the more people are going to get to the top of the hill. And so that's really where backwards design and UDL come together. And the other thing about backwards design and UDL is that because the goal is so important in backwards design, us knowing the goal, but also having students to know the goal in universal design is one of the elements of increasing engagement and motivation in students because then they know why they're doing what they're doing. So, I mean, there are so many wonderful and beautiful overlaps between the two, which is why like them coming together makes so much sense. Thank you. That was very comprehensive. So we're we're starting with that, that goal. Rambly. So we're starting with that, that goal. And where do we find the goal? We find the goal in the curriculum. In the curriculum. And then taking that time to, to look at it, what is it actually asking of? Uh, I want to reference your video, Napoleon Shmomolian. Yeah. Uh, we, we love that one where the, the goal isn't Napoleon. Napoleon. He's not in the curriculum uh, that, that frequently. The goal is to learn about uh, different heroes and, and how they, they've impacted society. So um, let's go down a bit more of a tangible route for, for teachers. Can you share some examples or strategies um, for teachers wanting to effectively integrate backwards design and universal design for learning into their lesson planning? Yeah. So I think the very first thing you have to do is you have to know your curriculum. Um, now, I know Alberta is in a little bit of a curriculum-like transition time slash limbo. But regardless, there are still very clear learning standards. Um, The other thing that's important to know is the structure of the curriculum. Okay, so every curricular jurisdiction has goals. Okay, but there's different kinds of goals, and they're called different things depending on the jurisdiction. So if you look at kind of the first version of the renewed curriculum in Alberta, it was conceptual and procedural knowledge were your content and your skills, right? Now there are the cusps, your, your knowledge, understanding, skills, and processes. And so the diff- those are all different types of goals and standards. Okay. So in Alberta, you have your learning outcome. That's what you are responsible for teaching and assessing. Okay. And so that learning outcome is your standard. That is the goal that we need to know before we can do backwards design, before we can do UDL. So that's step one is you have to know in a unit or in a lesson, what learning outcomes are you intentionally targeting for that period of time? And it can be more than one, okay? So once you have your learning outcome, what UDL tells us is that not only is it important for teachers to know their learning outcome, it's important for students to know their learning outcome. And so there's a really great process where you can you can do this like as a planning team, or you can do this with students to take the curricular language of the learning outcome and translate that into student-friendly language. And just the process of doing that increases understanding, it increases engagement, increases motivation, because then students know what the destination is, like where are we going? We also know that Universal Design for Learning says that organizing those learning outcomes into some larger context of understanding And that can be based in inquiry, that can be based in big ideas, that can be based in the understandings of a learning outcome, okay? So, like, all of these work together. So, knowing your goal, or knowing your outcomes, knowing how your outcomes fit together, and helping students to know that information is your first step. The next step is to look at your activities and your tasks, and being like, do the activities that I have set up for my students actually 
create evidence of learning of the learning outcomes that I'm actually trying to target. And even that is a is a fascinating process to go through because often our activities, we get them from all over the place. Sometimes they're old, sometimes they're new, sometimes they're from teachers pay teachers, sometimes they're from our Manitoba neighbor. Like actually looking at the activities we're getting kids to do and knowing what learning outcome will this create evidence of? And you start to see that there's a lot of stuff we can let go of. And there's also a lot of stuff that we need to add to really make sure that those those learning outcomes are being taught, targeted, and assessed. Where universal design for learning comes in is that once you have your activities, we want to then make sure that for every learning outcome, there's more than one activity that students can do to show evidence of that learning, okay? And there's something in education called triangulation, which I actually like to think about it like CSI, okay? So like, and I'll tell this to kids, you know, you're learning. Let's pretend this is a crime scene. They love it. They eat it up. When you go into a crime scene, everything is evidence, everything, but you don't know what's useful yet, okay? So you have to organize it. You have to collect it. You have to label it. You have to see how it fits together. And then when the time comes to solve the crime, you choose your best pieces of evidence. And that's where UDL comes in really handy because you don't have to rely on every piece of evidence. You can choose your best pieces and triangulate your learning in, in, in relation to an outcome. So although the outcomes are the same for everyone, the actual pieces of evidence that are triangulated can be different for every single kid. And that right there, allowing different types of evidence count as learning is universal design for learning. Um, the other part of it is in, in our in our looking for activities and tasks, we also want to make sure students are developing their multiple muscles, right? Like we want all kids writing. We want all kids speaking. We want all kids visually showing their learning. And so making sure our tasks are building all those muscles, but never so much as a student has to rely on one muscle that isn't their strength, right? And so that was always what was hard for me is that I was always expected to write, 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 which wasn't my strength. I never had the opportunity to talk. I can talk all day. Right. And so, you know, like, like, you know, valuing all these different ways that we can show our learning. And, and if you know what the learning outcome is, unless the learning outcome says right, you don't have to rely on it as the only piece of evidence that's, that you're collecting from students. And so you can see how there's elements of backwards design and UDL kind of working together and how well they fit together. But I would say, like, know your standard and have a range of activities to represent evidence is, is a really great place to start in a classroom. Awesome. That's that was a, a wonderful play by play of how we can start uh, working in this. If if any of our listeners want to uh, hear a teacher who has done this in action, I invite you to go back to episode two of this season. We have Alicia Burdess from Grand Prairie Catholic, who is using Peter Liliodal's uh, work to frame that in her in her classroom. W- would you be able to speak now um, to some educators that you've seen do this effectively and and maybe kind of describe what you've witnessed in classrooms. When you do this in a classroom, um, the first thing is that you're going to notice is that kids are going to say things like, where's my grade? Because in a, in a backwards design and UDL assessment framework, you're not grading everything, right? You're assessing formatively, you know what I mean, all the time, and you're giving feedback to students, but, you know, they may not get a grade on every single thing. And so there's always kind of questions around, will students buy into this? And um, one of my favorite examples of a teacher that taught his students 
the benefits of this is it was a grade nine math class and he gave them a unit test and then he he assessed it, but he didn't grade a grade to it. And so all the kids are like, where's my grade? What did I get on my test? And he's like, okay, so we're going to do an activity now to show you how the grade actually isn't useful to your learning. So he, on the, on the, on the unit test, he did, he did it so that it was one-sided. So it wasn't back to back. Okay. And so that way every student could cut out each question and each section of a question so that they would have a single piece of evidence. And so he, they had all the students cut up their questions in a pile. And then he gave them a backwards design plan, which had the big idea and it had the learning outcomes that that unit test was collecting evidence for. And then he said to the students, if you got a question correct, what is that evidence of? And they had to match the question to the learning outcome. And he's like, and if you got the question incorrect, then you don't have evidence and it has to go in another pile. Okay. So he says, do this with all your questions. And then I want you to look at the unit backwards design plan. And you tell me what you have evidence of and what you don't have evidence of. And so they did that. And they were all able to say, I have this school, this school, this school. I need evidence for this school, this school. And he's like, okay, so if I told you, you got 87% on that quiz or that test, could you have told me what evidence do you have and what evidence you don't? And they're like, of course not. They're like, okay, but the part that got them was that they said, well, if we if we got a question wrong, do we have another chance to provide evidence to the school? And he said, yes, that's the benefit is that you have another opportunity if one opportunity doesn't work for you. And that's when they saw the benefit. And to be like, okay, so I mean, technically you have the whole course, right? And that's when they started to kind of like, flesh out the details of this. And so they made it a really transparent process. At the end of every lesson, he asked the kids, okay, what did we do today? And what is this evidence of? Which learning outcomes do we have evidence of? So that by the end of the unit, everybody knew what evidence was possible. And so if they missed a day, or if they didn't, if they were tired one day, or if they don't test well, there were other pieces that they could rely on to justify that they had evidence of meeting a learning standard. And it just shifted the whole process from teacher-centered to student-centered involvement. And the buy-in was through the roof. One kid said to me, Miss Moore, this is like a video game. I'm like, exactly. They were like little quests, right? And it just became so transparent. And it moved away from kids always asking what their grade is to kids being like, where can I get evidence of this goal? And I mean, if this kid says that to me, like that, that's where we're trying to go. You know, that idea of student agency, which is really the power in all of this, because um, that's where you're going to see your engagement, your motivation, your understanding. We know all of that is connected um, to universal design for learning. And so it's um, it's pretty powerful to see it in action, but it also means we have to let go of some control, which is a little bit hard sometimes. Yeah. And I'd like to to honor that that feeling of I need to let go of it and how scary that can be. It can be terrifying, yeah. In education, we we sometimes end up doing what was done to us. So we're trying to, as teachers, model how we were taught. And when we start thinking of different ways to do it, it can feel daunting or unattainable to move into these kind of frameworks in our own practice. What are some tips that you have for for teachers who want to make this change, but they're just not ready to to jump in? Uh, find a friend. Never, never plan alone. Um, find a person to do this with. Uh, start with one unit. Start with one unit and, and even just start with start with a unit that you already have. Just be like, okay, like what 
you love this unit so much. Why do you love it? Why is this a great unit? And because, I mean, we have our units that we do over time that we're like, oh, kids love this unit. They love it for a reason. And so actually going in and being like, why? Why is this so great? And I'll tell you why. It's going to be because they know what they need to do. The expectations are clear. They have different ways to, you know what I mean? Like they're all going to feel successful. And so if you if you start with a unit that you love and that kids love, you're going to see that you're doing a lot of this thing, these things already intuitively. And so even just naming that and making that systematic will then help you to say, okay, how do I do this for a unit that 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 might be harder to engage in, right? Um, the nice thing about UDL is that it targets engagement. And when kids are engaged, that fuels our soul, like that fills our soul, that fuels us to go forward. And so you know, if we can combine the love of assessment and the love of engagement, which is what many teachers love together, this is going to fuel the fire for more work down the road. Because once you see it in action and you see kids being successful and engaged and having less behavior difficulties and anxiety, like you can't unsee it. Right. And so start small, find a friend and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll end, I'll end with this one story. Cause I liked what you said about like naming the fear. Um, so like, I don't know if you're aware, but I have a two-year-old daughter. She's two and a half. Okay. And we have, um, an elementary school on the little Island that we live on. And we have this outdoor inquiry oriented climb tree school. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, I would have loved that growing up. Right. And so my wife is like, well, let's put her in the tree climbing school. And it's public. It's a public school, which was my first question, because I can't I can't send my kid to a private school. Fair enough. But it's a public school, the tree climbing school. And I'm like, why am I so like apprehensive about this? Like, of course, this is going to be amazing. I would have loved this as a kid. Why, as a parent, am I fearful to send my kid or even think about sending my kid to the tree climbing, outdoor, inquiry-oriented, lead, cross-grade, inclusive? Like, it's the dream. And I sat there and I was just like, you know what it is? It's fear. Like I had to go through it. That built skills. It it was resilience to navigate. It built skills. Like maybe my kids also need to go through a hard education to be resilient. Like I have this weird, like maybe it's good for them. Maybe it's good for kids to have hard time learning. And then I said, I'm like, Shelly, pull yourself together. This is your life's work to try and get schools to be more all of the things that this school is doing. You know, you can't, you can't prepare a kid by relying on ineffective practices because you think that's going to make them resilient. Like I had to have a real big check-in with myself to be like, Shelly, there's an opportunity here for your kid to learn in a different way that you would have like totally thrived in she will learn resilience in another way. You know what I mean? And so I think sometimes we get wrapped up well-meaning. We get wrapped in the, yeah, but, but I had to do it. I, and I made it and I got through and that made me a good person. But at the same time, many kids didn't, many kids didn't get through the system. And so I think it's really important to know that like, this is an opportunity right now in education right now to open up success for so many kids, but without sacrificing the high expectations of high quality teaching and learning and assessment. And so it's, um, it's a worthwhile conversation to have, but the possibility is just endless. And it's something that can fuel you, fuel you um, when I know conditions are very rough right now. So trust the process, my friends. Wonderful. So 
as you were talking about your par- parent perspective, I think that's that's sometimes another uh, worry is as a teacher, I'm learning and I'm trying to shift my practice and I don't feel secure in what I'm doing. And how am I going to talk to parents about what I'm doing? Do you have any tips for how we can have conversations with our families? Because I believe that through conversations, we actually build better understandings. So oh, totally. what are some, some um, things that teachers could do there? I actually have a parent session tonight with 900 people. So this is a good prep for that, for that session. Um, I think that like all of us as just people are going to hold on to what we know. It's just kind of like, it makes us feel safe. Right. Um, especially if it worked for us and there's many parents who school worked for. Right. And if they have kids that school isn't working for or is working for, they get worried. Think, why are things changing? Right. Like, why are things changing? And so when I talk to parents, um, the first thing I often mention, I'm just like, you know what? The best way that I can be a teacher is to model learning. I'm also a learner. Like the goal is not for to be an expert. The goal is for me to model to my students learning. And I'm learning about this thing. You know, like this thing that's valid and empirical and reliable, like, you know, like really anchor that, you know, like my goal is not to give knowledge to your children. My goal is to model being a learner, which helps a lot. The other one um, is often I'll compare just like the profession, professional professionalism of, of occupations, right? So for example, if you're a doctor and there is a new procedure for heart surgery based on research and evidence and you are the person getting the heart surgery are you going to go to the doctor who isn't updating their practice or are you going to go to the doctor who is the most current knowledge prepared you know in the field and of course you're going to choose the most updated research-based practitioner and so I think you know, when we're talking about education, it's the exact same thing. Like we are learning all the time about how how learners learn best, you know, and what they need to be successful and how to create conditions where students are thriving. And, and we're learning that all the time. And so when parents are worried, I say, hey, listen, like I'm a learner, I'm learning too, but I'm learning because that's my professional responsibility to be the most up to date in my profession. And so I'm learning about this thing. And it's different than even how I grew up. And so it's like, validate them. It's uncomfortable. But like, this is how we know, this is what we know is good for kids and what works for for learners. And cite your evidence. And there's there's little pushback after that little soapbox explanation. Yeah. I think as I've been talking with so many different guests on the podcast, that that same line comes up. Just, Just have the conversation. And there's usually little questions. People are typically appreciative that that you took the time to explain it to them and also just transparency like when we changed the curriculum in bc like the, the meeting tonight like the meeting tonight with my parents uh parents are in a panic because we're we're changing our iep process and that's something that hasn't changed for a very very long time and so they know it they know it and so there's going to be a lot of questions there's going to be a lot of fear and so just being really transparent about it be like this is why it's changing like here, here's the research. These are the intentions behind it. And, you know, knowledge, knowledge alleviates anxiety often and giving opportunities for parents to ask questions. Um, they need to feel heard. I mean, they're very, very valid questions and concerns. And so just allowing them to, to talk them out. Like you say, having conversation, I think that's really the direction to, to resolve a lot of those issues. 
Thank you so much, uh, Shelley, for all of your insights in in relation to backwards design, uh, universal design for learning, and change management. Change. Really, mm-hmm. feels bad, but it's good. <laughs> yeah. So um, as we're wrapping up the end of the episode here, I have two more questions. So this first one is, is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to promote or talk about? Um, yeah, so there, I have two big projects right now. One is um, this IEP project. So um, as as we all know, um, IEPs um, evolve out of a special education medical model, which looks at deficits in order to program. And so I'm working on a project and doing research around how to evolve individual education plans to be strength-based and inclusive. So connected to a common curriculum as peers. And so that's like my baby right now. That book is coming out hopefully soon. And COVID, COVID has, has hopefully been wrapped up soon. Hopefully we're getting there. And so I've been able to start up my five more minutes again. And so there'll be a new video released on October 15th, like Napoleon Schmamolian, but with a new, with a new topic. So those will be released once a month. So hopefully those will be useful to everybody. That's fantastic. And I'll link your uh, website and also your YouTube channel in the description for this episode. That's great. Thank you. And the last question is quite a big question. So take it where you want to take it. Uh, But what is a dream that you have for education? Oh, oh man. My dream for education is that inclusion isn't a thing anymore because it's just something that happens. Um, If you know my work, my research is all about inclusive education um, and increasing opportunities and equity for students with disabilities, um, that we start to see disability as a critical component to our classrooms instead of an extra thing or burden that we have to do. Um, it is uh, key to this work. Everything I've learned, I've learned from um, navigating the disability myself and in the disability community. And so I think we're starting to move forward in embracing and honoring identities of our students. Um, but I still think disability is is something that we don't necessarily embrace and more tolerate right now. And so that's, that is the dream. That's the mountain I'm climbing in this lifetime is for us um, non-disabled people to recognize the contributions of the disability community and so that parents uh, don't feel like they have to fight for like basic human rights and education for their kids. So um, go run down to the special education room and get get your picks because um, if you do not have a child with a disability in your classroom, you and your kids are missing out. And that is the dream. That's the dream. It's a wonderful dream to have. And I I hope we can find some some hope that there's a lot of us working towards that yeah, in education. And yeah. we're we're starting to talk about it and to talk about it in real ways that are going to affect change for our students. I, I and you know what and you're right. Like it, it is changing and we just gotta keep going. Even yeah. when it's hard. <laughs> Thanks, well, Julie. thanks so much for being on the podcast. And uh, I'm sure we'll reach out to you sometime in the future. And it would be great to even get you in at Edmonton Catholic Schools. Oh, man, I'd love to come. Thank you so much, Julia. And go have a great year, everybody. Stereotype threat refers to a phenomenon where individuals feel anxious or concerned about confirming negative stereotypes related to their social or demographic group. This can have a significant impact on student performance and their ability to reach their full potential. Fortunately, teachers can play a vital role in addressing and reducing stereotype threat in the classroom.
Today, we'll explore some effective techniques that teachers can implement to empower all students. First of all, foster a growth mindset. Teachers can cultivate a growth mindset amongst their students by emphasizing that abilities and intelligence can be developed through effort and practice rather than being fixed traits. This will help teachers um, support students to believe their capacity to improve and succeed. This mindset can shift and counteract the negative effects of stereotype threat and encourage students to embrace challenges and persevere. Secondly, provide diverse role models. Representation matters in the classroom. Teachers can make a conscious effort to include a diverse range of role models in their curriculum, textbooks, and classroom discussions. This showcases positive examples from various backgrounds and helps students to see that success is not limited to specific stereotypes. By exposing students to diverse perspectives and achievements, teachers can challenge stereotypes and inspire all students to aspire to greatness. Promote an inclusive classroom environment is the third point. Creating, a, creating an inclusive classroom environment is crucial in reducing stereotype threat. Teachers can establish a safe space where all students feel valued, respected, and free to express their opinions. Encourage open dialogue and foster an atmosphere where differences are celebrated. This can help students feel empowered to challenge stereotypes and break free from the constraints of stereotype threat. The fourth point is to teach stereotype awareness. Educating students about stereotype threat can be a powerful tool. Teachers can facilitate discussions about stereotypes, biases, and their impact. By helping students recognize and understand stereotype threat, teachers empower them uh, to confront and overcome these barriers, encourage critical thinking, empathy, and perspective-taking to foster a deeper understanding of the complexity of identity and the importance of avoiding stereotypes. The fifth point is, is to embrace a universal design for learning framework. UDL presumes vari variation and ultimately fosters a learning environment where multiple means of engagement, expression, and representation support and value the inclusion of everyone. UDL is a framework that aims to provide all students, regardless of their backgrounds or ability, with equitable opportunities to learn and succeed. And the sixth and final point is individualized support. Every student is unique and teachers must recognize and address individual needs. Provide personalized support to students who may be affected by stereotype threat. Offer additional resources, one-to-one -one guidance, and mentorship to help them build confidence and develop their strength. Recognize and celebrate each student's progress, reinforcing the ideas that their success is not limited to stereotypes. So in conclusion, Overcoming stereotype threat is a collaborative effort between teachers, students, and the entire school community. By Im implementing these techniques, educators can create a positive, inclusive, and empowering learning environment that, is, that enables all students to thrive and achieve their full potential. Together, we can break down barriers and empower every student to reach new heights. In Mathematical Mindsets, unleashing students' potential through creative math, inspiring messages, and innovative teaching, 
Joe Bowler is a well-renowned mathematics education professor at Stanford University, providing a groundbreaking and compelling approach to teaching mathematics that could transform the way teachers engage with this often misunderstood subject. Central to Bowler's philosophy is the idea that anyone can be successful in math. The book challenges the myth that math ability is fixed and encourages teachers and students alike to adapt a growth mindset. The belief that abilities and intelligence can be developed with effort, perseverance, and practice. This mindset is key in fostering resilience and confidence in students' math abilities. Bowler argues for a shift away from rote memorization and drills towards a more creative, exploratory approach to math. This emphasis on understanding rather than merely executing procedures can make math more meaningful and engaging to students, thereby increasing their mathematical proficiency. The book is also coupled with the neuroscientific research behind learning and growth mindset, offering a convincing case for its effectiveness. Bowler presents research showing that mistakes and struggles are beneficial to the learning process, emphasizing the importance of a positive and open mindset in overcoming difficulties in math. Mathematical Mindsets is another practical book as Bowler provides a wealth of resources for teachers, including teaching strategies, open-ended mathematical tasks and resources, and also addresses the issue of math anxiety, which is a widespread problem that hinders many students' mathematical development. She provides insight into its causes and offers strategies to help students overcome their fear of math. Mathematical Mindsets is a transformative book that offers a fresh perspective on math education. By promoting a growth mindset, advocating for a more exploratory approach to math, and providing practical resources, Bowler equips teachers with the tools they need to inspire and develop their students' mathematical abilities. Any teacher, whether confident in their math teaching abilities or not, will undoubtedly benefit from Bowler's insightful and inspiring work. As we wrap up today's episode, our heartfelt thanks goes out again to Dr. Shelley Moore for sharing her wisdom with us. Connect with us on Instagram at ECSD Learning and subscribe for more engaging episodes. Thank you for being a part of the Learning Curve ECSD podcast, where we explore the diverse paths that intersect in the world of education. Stay tuned for more transformative conversations. Until next time, goodbye.